Now the people of the sheep, Beshemish, were, re were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And they raised their eyes and saw the ark and were glad to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua and the Beshemite and stood there where there was a large stone. And they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was with it in which there were the articles of gold, and put them on the large stone. And the men of Beshemish offered burnt offerings and sacrifices, and sacrificed sacrifices that day to the Lord. When the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned to Ekron that day. These are the gold tumors which the Philistines returned for a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both of fortified cities and of country villages. The large stone on which they set the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua, the Beshemite. He struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh, because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck down all of the people, 50,070 men. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with great slaughter. The men of Beth Shemesh said, Who will be able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kareth-Joram, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kareth-Joram came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Ab Abinadab, I think, on the hill, and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord from the day that the ark remained at Kareth Jerim. This time was long, for it was twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Uh, you have, you have heard the quote. It's a popular quote. We see it on Instagram, on Facebook, wherever else we look, uh, we see this quote from some famous church person. Preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. Preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. This quote is often attributed by a church father by the name of Francis of Assisi. And here is the thing about Francis is he, he never actually said this. Uh, this quote is pseudepigraphal, which means somebody made it up and attributed it to Mr. Francis, St. Francis of Assisi, uh, and he never actually said it. It is not written anywhere in any of his works. Instead, let me read to you a quote from Francis of Assisi. No brother should preach contrary to the form and regulations of the Holy Church, or unless he has been permitted by his minister. All the friars should preach by their deeds. Preach by their deeds. What Francis of Assisi was getting at 
was that we should not neglect the proclamation of the gospel or the word of God by mouth. Instead, as we preach the word of God explicitly using our words, we should strive to live in such a way that is consistent with the things that we are preaching. The thing about preaching the gospel, brothers and sisters, is that it cannot be done without using words. People do not look at a person who does good things and say, Oh, I need to respond to the gospel and repent. It doesn't make sense. The gospel must be shared using words. And as we live, we live in such a way that is consistent with the gospel that we, that we preach. I, I wonder why we do this thing. Why we come up with quotes like this and attribute it to some person, even though this person taught quite the opposite of what the quote says or what the quote means. And I also wonder why we can walk into any bookstore, even a Christian bookstore, and see self-help books with titles like, like these. Let me read some of these titles to you. The first one does not come from a Christian bookstore. It's at Target, and it is, uh, it is fresh. It is new. Girl, stop apologizing. Thanks. <laughs> Own your every day. Own it. Own your every day. The greatest you. Finding your own North Star. You're a bad... I won't finish that one. 100 days to brave. And the universe has your back. I wonder why as Christians, as church people, we design quotes like this, attribute them to people who never said them, and why these book titles are the most popular book titles in our, in our culture. It almost seems like we want to convince ourselves that something is correct Write the truth uh, because we want to just defend the way that we are that we are living. If I wanted to become an instant success in our culture, in our society, and I wanted to publish a book that people would actually buy, people don't really buy my books. But if I wanted to publish a book that people could actually buy, I could make the entire message of the book. It's the same as all of these books. I just make the message of of the book this. This is how you can be a success, how you can make money, how you can live a satisfied life, how you can be content, how you can overcome all your obstacles, how you can claim victory. This is how you do one of these things without really much effort and without having to change a thing about you. Because the universe has your back. If I wanted to be an instant success, I could, I could publish a book like this and people would buy it because this is the type of thing that people want to hear. As we've been reading through 1 Samuel, we, we have seen God working in really a different way. Um, God did not just tell the people what they want to hear. God did not cater to the people. God was not interested in, in making His Word relevant to 
to people because people in the depths of their soul and their hearts are unrighteous, are sinful. There's a need for there's need for for change if we want to be healthy spiritually and physically and mentally and emotionally. There is need for change. We have to somehow be brought out of our unrighteous nature. We saw this first as God visited the Israelites on the battlefield and they were in this battle against the people of Philistia and God defeated Israel before the Philistines. That's the explicit wording of the text. And then we saw it as the, the Philistines captured the Ark of God and brought the Ark of God into their own territory and God defeated, killed, dismembered their false god Dagon and then he plagued the people and oppressed the people and the Philistines felt that they needed to expel the Ark of God. They needed to exile God from their land as if that were possible. And now we move into this text the Philistines, they're getting rid of the ark. They have sent the ark of God away. When we approach this text this morning, I, I want to look at it in three parts. First of all, we'll look at verses 13 through 18. And we will see the things that people celebrate in human-centered religion. Then we'll look at verses 19 through 21, and we'll see, in contrast to this, we will see God's holiness, the picture of God's holiness. And then in chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, we will actually see what true, genuine worship looks like as God gets a hold of, of us. Verses 13 through 18, the things that people celebrate. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And they raised their eyes and saw the ark and were glad to see it. They were happy. This was reason for celebration. The ark of God is returned. Verse 14, the cart came into the field of Joshua the Beth Shemite and stood there where there was a large stone. And they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was with it, in which were the articles of gold, and they put them on the large stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices that day to the Lord, There is much celebration in Beth Shemesh. And the, the people here, the Beth Shemites, they seem to be very religious in what they are doing. The ark returns, so they, they take the cart that the ark is on and they break it down and they make that into the wood for the sacrifice. They sacrifice the bulls. They, they have accepted this guilt offering. Remember, the Philistines have offered this guilt offering according to Leviticus chapter 5, which means God was making His word known also among the Philistines, an unbelieving people. Now, I want to notice a couple things in this text that do not quite line up with God's instruction in Leviticus chapter 5. And the Philistines, the unbelieving nation, here seem to pay more attention to the law of God than, than the Beth Shemites did, than the Israelites did. And so here we see, in this part of the story, in these few verses, that the Beth Shemites are contrasted from the 
Levites in the text. The text re- refers to them separately. Now, Beth Shemesh at this point was a city that belonged to the Levites, but when we look at this text, we see that the Beth Shemites were differentiated from, from the Levites. According to Leviticus chapter 5, when someone brought a guilt offering before the Lord, it was actually the priest, which at this point in the story is Samuel. It is the priest who had to offer this sacrifice, this guilt offering, on behalf of the people. And we, we saw last week how atonement actually had to be made on, on someone's behalf. And here, the, the offering is not given to the, the priest to present before the Lord. Instead, the Beth Shemites, in their gladness, in their joy, in their celebration took the cows and sacrificed them. And it was not the priest, or presumably not even the Levites, who offered up this sacrifice. And so the Israelites, the Beth Shemites here, are doing this in a way that is contrary to the Old Testament law, that is contrary to the very word of, of God, contrary to God's instructions. Where are the priests? Where are the Levites? And the text clarifies this for us. The Levites are concerned with taking the ark of God and taking the box that has all of these treasures that the Philistines have have sent this way. And the Levites are taking the ark and the treasure and they are setting them in, in their place. And here, according to the law, the Philistines have offered this price of retribution. God, please spare us, even though we have sinned and even though we have done you wrong. This unbelieving people, unreligious people, according to the law, looked to God's law because God drew their attention to Him. And they were trying to do this according to the law so that God would stop oppressing them, which He does not do. And we'll learn that in the next chapter, chapter 7. But then the Israelites take this offering and offer it up in a way that is inconsistent with the Word. They do something that looks religious. And at our first reading, we're like, oh great, the Israelites are celebrating and they are offering up this offering to the Lord. They are doing something that looks religious. The Israelites, these people who claim to be the people of God, are doing this religious thing, but they are not doing it in a way that honors God. God. They are concerned with religiosity and they are concerned with making themselves look good and celebrating the things of God without honoring God Himself. And we even see that here with the Levites committing the same sin that Hophni and Phinehas have, have committed in the previous chapters when they took the offering of God and embezzled and brought it in for themselves and were concerned with gaining for themselves, the the Levites haven't learned a thing. Here in this text, we're experiencing a transition. God has gone from talking about how He works in the midst of an unbelieving nation, and He is now talking about how He works in this physical nation that He has chosen for Himself among a people who call themselves by His name but don't actually love Him or care to honor Him. We remember that this physical picture that the nation of Israel paints for us, the nation of Israel is a pictorial prophecy, a living parable of God's spiritual people. And in the world today, we have 
unbelievers who don't want anything to do with God, who, who want to exile God from their midst. Unbelieving people. And then we also have many, many, many people who claim to be Christians or claim to be religious and do things that look very religious and come up with quotes that sound very religious and God-honoring and come up with book titles that that sound very religious and very God-honoring because God is so concerned with our success in this world, right? They don't actually care about honoring God. And people who call themselves by God's name, whether it's Christians or people, people in some other religion or or, or cult, people who call themselves by God's name and presume themselves to be the people of, of God are trying to claim the things of God, but they're trying to, to claim them according to their own preferences, according to their own traditions. And we've already learned in our walk through 1 Samuel up to this point that, that it cannot be this Way. God is a God who does not share His glory. And God is much more concerned with our coming to worship Him than our claiming something that He has our own, our own way. We'll move on. Verses 16 through 18. When the five lords of the Philistines, the ones who represent un- unbelievers people who want nothing to do with God after being exposed to the strength and the power of God and after being witnesses of the riches of God's glory, want nothing to do with Him. When the five lords of the Philistines saw, saw it, they returned to Ekron that day. These are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned for a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both of fortified cities and of country villages. The large stone on which they set the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua the Bethshemiah. So the Philistines saw this. They saw that the people were celebrating They saw that this was no coincidence, that it really was God who was oppressing them, if we remember the message from last week. And they turned and they went back to their cities. There was no heart change for the Philistines. As people who represent the unbelieving unbelieving people, even being exposed to the riches of God's glory and and being witnesses of God's power and God's strength and God's oppression against them. Still, they they did not repent of their ways. Still, this thing for them was a religious act that they were doing to appease a God and to claim some sort of victory, which is the very works-based righteousness that all of Scripture tells us is, is impossible. That's why salvation is by grace through faith. Jesus, when He was teaching His disciples, He taught about this explicitly. He tells the story of of a rich man 
and a poor man. The rich man, of course, is nameless in the story, but the poor man's name is Lazarus. And he sat at the gate of the rich man, hoping just to have some table scraps. And Jesus even describes how, how his sores are being licked by dogs. Well, the story goes on. They both die, and the rich man goes to a place called Hades, and Lazarus goes to be at Abraham's side. The rich man is so thirsty in this place of torment that he, he begs Abraham to just to send Lazarus with just a drop of water on the tip of his finger so that he, he might receive some relief. And Abraham replies, there's a chasm fixed. Nobody can cross from here to there, from there to here. When the rich man begins to plea for the lives of his brothers, his family, it says, Abraham, send Lazarus back to tell my brothers so that they don't come to this terrible, horrible place. And this is what Abraham had to say. Luke chapter 16, verses 27 through 31. The rich man said, I then beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the Bible that's been given to them, that's been written down for them. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. The goal here is repentance before God. Verse 31, But Abraham said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. So brothers and sisters, we talk about a people who are, who are unbelieving people. We see not only in the story we're reading through, through 1 Samuel that it is impossible for them to come to repentance, But that, but that even if it were possible, they wouldn't. In fact, we see that if, if people are not persuaded by the proclamation of God's Word or the reading of God's Word or the exposure to God's Word, Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded by anything. They will not be persuaded by supernatural healing. They will not be persuaded by miracles and signs. They will not be persuaded if their false god Dagon is decapitated and laid prostrate before the Ark of God's covenant. People who are unbelieving people and who are unrighteous and who have this unrighteous nature without being changed by God, by the proclamation of God's word alone, will not be persuaded by church music, by church programs, by church ministries, by games. In church, they will not be persuaded by a personality who is a preacher, someone who has great oratory skill, someone who asks the right questions or tells the right stories. They will not be persuaded, even if someone was risen from the dead, even if someone came back to life. And here I, I have to say something about the sufficiency of God's Word in all things. 
God's word goes forth and God's word accomplishes exactly what God has decided that it will accomplish. And God is responsible for doing his own work. As we see with the Philistines, people who were unbelieving, who would never know God, who would never understand God, God still took the time to reveal something about himself so that God is glorified even among unbelieving people. Even among unbelieving people. And this is why we preach the gospel, the word of God, to all people. It is not ultimately our goal to persuade all people everywhere to come to Christ. Oh, we will try and persuade people to come to Christ. And we will practice apologetics defending the faith. And and we will reason with people concerning the truth of the gospel. And we will reason from science and from philosophy and from mathematics and from the beauty of the universe. But it is not our goal to persuade people to come to God using those things. It is our objective, it is our goal to declare the glory of God among all people and God will call people from among every nation to Himself as we preach His Word. And as we see His Word as entirely sufficient for all of life and ministry. And Jesus teaches the same thing. If they do not hear the Scriptures, what is said through Moses, the Law, and the Prophets, and now through the the Gospels and the letters in the New Testament, if they do not hear Moses and the Prophets and the Apostles, Neither will they be persuaded, no matter what else you do, by human strategy or tactics or cunning or persuasiveness. Unbelieving people are unpersuaded by the things of God to their own detriment. Then we've seen in this text that people who claim to be people of God are not much different And they use the things of God much like the Philistines used the things of God. That is, that they might somehow celebrate some sort of of victory that they have won for themselves or that has been won on on their behalf. And in contrast to this, God's Word gets at His holiness. Not the hype of people and not the celebration of people and not the glad-heartedness of people. Though I hope that we are glad-hearted when we come together. Sorry about this message today, family. God begins to talk about His own holiness through this story. Verses 19 through 21 here in 1 Samuel chapter 6. He, that is God struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck down all of the people, 50,070 men. Now this number, 50,070 men, is a very large number. Uh, This can be translated a few different ways, and it can be done so correctly, so it's uh, uh, worth us being aware of this. Uh, That number can be translated as one-fifth of the people there. 
50 out of every 1,000 of the people there, 5 out of every 1,000 of the people there. And so this number can be translated a, a number of ways. And some of your translations is going to, uh, are going to admit, omit this number altogether um, because this is actually a disputed part of the text. And it is unknown whether this is in the text or not. So that is something for us to be aware of. But this number, if it is added to the text by a scribe somewhere down the line, does not change the interpretation of the text whatsoever. No matter what this number is or the correct way to translate this number, it does not change the interpretation of the text whatsoever. The people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. With a great slaughter. That means it wasn't just a few people who died by God's hand. Now this verse is difficult. One, it's difficult in the translation of the number, but that's not what makes this passage really difficult. In fact, the interpretation here is, is clear. God killed some people because they looked into the Ark of the Covenant. No, this passage is difficult because it's, it's difficult for us to accept, especially in a culture where we elevate God's, God's love above all of His other characteristics. How could a loving God kill people just for looking into a box? We notice something about the great holiness of our, of our God. Something I think that we have missed in majority Christianity today. And in many pulpits today. And in many local churches today. And perhaps in many religions today. And God's holiness demands justice. I want to read something to you from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. This is written in the law. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love Him and keep His commandments. There is a promise here. Now, first of all, one of God's characteristics is loving kindness. And God is love and He keeps this loving kindness and He keeps this covenant that He has made to a thousandth generation of those who love Him and keep His commandments. And what we see here is that those who keep His commandments are those who love God. Obedience is, is tied strictly to the love that we have for God and is not listed here as the root of the relationship. We don't keep the commandments or become obedient and this somehow produces love in our lives. We don't keep God's commandments or become obedient to God and then somehow God loves us, right? No, love here is mentioned first. Those who love God and keep His Commandments. So it's like the keeping of God's commandments, this obedience to God. It's, it's the fruit of our relationship with, with God. That those who love God do come to strive to obey God. And all of a sudden, in reference to the law, we see what is going on with the Beth Shemites here, right? They have not paid careful attention to God's law which is fruit being produced in their lives that reveals the root. 
they, they really probably don't love God if they're not taking the time to go back and look at the law and do this thing as the law, as the law says. Love produces obedience on our part. Verse 10 in Deuteronomy chapter 7, But God repays those who hate Him to their faces. Does this sound like what might be going on in 1 Samuel? But God repays those who hate Him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which I am commanding you today to do them. The converse of obedience is disobedience. It's the opposite thing. And it comes from the, the opposite turning of the heart instead of to love, to hatred. And so in our in our, in our text for today, not only have we seen the Philistines, this unbelieving people, act with explicit hatred toward God, get this God out of our land, but we have seen people who call themselves by God's name and who presume to be people of God act with implicit hate toward God by doing the religious stuff even though their hearts are far from God. Even though their hearts are far from God. And I just, I can't help but weep at this. Because we see so many people who claim to be Christians doing the same thing in our day, trying to claim the things of God and the religiosity and wanting to have church while still doing church in, in the way that the world does its stuff. God is far from their hearts, yet they're trying to present themselves as religious and lovers of God in some way. And the Bible identifies this actually as hatred toward, toward God. Hatred toward God. John chapter 14, Jesus teaches again. And, and He's teaching these things in, in the same manner that the Old Testament teaches these things. It really is amazing how God doesn't change. John chapter 14, verses 7 through 15. If you had known me, this is Jesus, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him, Philip. Philip's reply, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Philip says, please show us the Father. It will be enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does His works. And this is Jesus speaking. Verse 11, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Haven't the miracles and the signs I've been doing proven to you that I am one with God? that I am the Son, that God and I are the same. Verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, this thing begins with belief, love in the heart, that's where it starts. 
He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. It's the love in us, the belief in us that actually produces works and the likeness of the works that Christ did and does. Jesus even says, and greater works than these will he do because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Does that sound familiar? That's Deuteronomy chapter 7. If you love me, if there is love in the heart, this will produce the fruit of obedience in the lives of true believers. And just to put this in context, the, the guy who wrote the Gospel of John, his, his name is John. That, I think that makes sense, right? His name was John. He was the Apostle John, the beloved disciple. And he also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And in 1st John chapter 4, verse 19, John, the one who wrote this, who, who described this story, who quoted Jesus here, says this, that we love because He first loved us. And so John adds even another level onto this description. He describes the love that we have for God as some fruit of something else, and then obedience as some fruit of, of that. And the ultimate root of all this is that God loves us. And His love is experienced first. And upon experiencing his love, this produces a love in us that we might love God. And if we love God, this produces obedience in the life of the believer. In the life of the believer. As, as the church, we've done a pretty good job of pushing sinners away from the church, from the organized church, from organized religion. We've done a pretty good job of being condemning of, of many, many people that we don't agree with. And we look to what is happening in the law of God and in the Gospels and in the letters through all of Scripture. We see that God is pointing out our sin pointing it out purposefully by His Word, pointing out our sinfulness so that, so that we might realize our unrighteousness and be drawn into grace. Be drawn into grace. Yet the very thing we do with people who are not in the church is opposite of what God is doing in His, in His Word. If the law was meant to point out our sins so that we might be drawn into grace... And then we see the pathological liar. And we say, stay away from me, I don't want anything to do with you. Then we've done the opposite of what the Bible strives to do. If the law is meant to point out our sin so that we might recognize our unrighteousness and be drawn into grace, then, then we look at the, the murderer and the person who practices sexual immorality the person who has preferences that seem to us to be completely evil. And we look at the, the thief. And we look at those who, who can't control their tongues. And we look at people who commit any manner of sin, who are hateful, 
and shameful and angry who covet and who are not generous and we send any sort of message that says we don't want anything to do with you then we are proclaiming a gospel that is in direct contradiction to the gospel that we have been given when is the last time we preached the gospel explicitly not just living a good life and hoping that people will see when is the last time we preached the gospel explicitly to the worst of sinners with gentleness and with respect praying that God will draw that person to himself we can't we can't convince by any means of our own we can't convince the liar to not lie anymore some of you have tried some of you have raised children and you know exactly what I'm talking about and then you finally resolve well they're going to have to learn from their own mistakes right you can't convince the angry person to stop being angry you probably just make them angrier by doing that, right? You can't convince the person who can't control the tongue to start controlling the tongue. You can't convince the alcoholic to stop drinking. You can't convince the homosexual to stop having these sexual urges and desires and and doing these sexual things. You can't convince the transgender to identify in any other way. The Bible is explicit about that, yet, as the organized church, that's what we devote all of our energy to doing, rather than proclaiming the actual gospel given to us in, in the Word. Which is not ignore sin. Some people take that to an extreme, right? And just ignore sin altogether. We're not going to address it at all. No, there's a purpose for sin. God allows sin for a reason. And that is that we would know our sin, that we would look to His Word, that we would recognize our sin. This is just the basic gospel, by the way. That we would recognize our sin, God's just nature. We would see that we can't measure up to God and that we wouldn't fix ourselves for God but that we would just repent and surrender to God. That's the gospel. God takes changing people as a responsibility for himself, and he promises that he is the only one who can work that out, and unbelieving people will not respond. He's honest about that. People who claim to be Christians, but their hearts are far from God, they will not respond, or they will take this religious stuff, and they will do some religious stuff, hoping to get something out of it. Just like the heathen. So the unbeliever and the Christian who's just wearing a mask, they're the same. The same. I hope this morning we're not wearing masks as we gather together. But the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord this Holy God. And to whom shall he go up from us? Talking about God. These people who claim to be the people of God and love God, who were part of God's chosen physical nation as a picture of God's spiritual people, 
These people who claim to be the people of God are now wanting to, to send God away to another city because God is now oppressing them just as He had done with the Philistines, the unbelieving and unrighteous and perverse nation. God, if this is how you are, if, if this really is how holy you are, and we can't use religion to honor ourselves, and we want nothing to do with you. Verse 21, So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. We don't want it here. Come down and take it up to, to you. And so the response of people who claim to be religious or claim to be Christian is the same as that response of unbelievers. Same as the response of unbelievers. And the people who were celebrating themselves victory and were doing the religious stuff that weren't, wasn't necessarily biblical, right? And just people who claimed to be religious doing things that looked religious but it didn't actually profit them. They were glad-hearted and celebrating. And God said, no. I am holy. This isn't about you. This is about my glory. Chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim, the time was long, for it was twenty years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the lamented twenty years, lamented after the Lord. A lament is a deep cry of sorrow and of repentance. This is the opposite of the gladness of heart that we saw in the last chapter. Now, it's, not that, it's not that the Lord won't give a gladness of heart in its time. He does, and He provides great joy. But in this text, in this story, what we see is this deep lament and sorrow and repentance of the people in this city, Kiriath-Jerim, this was truer worship than the gladness of heart and the celebration of those in Beth Shemesh. And it's because the people, the people knew that it was God who defeated them against the Philistines. It is God who allowed His ark to be transported to Philistia. It is God who oppressed Philistia so that the people of Philistia would return the ark. And the ark comes back and their response to God for their sin, for the sins of Eli and Hophni and Phinehas as described earlier in this book, for the sins of the people of Beth Shemesh as they participated in the sins of Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. Their response was not singing and dancing and celebration and tambourines. Their response was lament. 
when is the last time that we lamented over our sin and over the sin of others after the Lord or in response to the Lord's working in our heart? Most people reject this, even though I think it's probably the truest form of worship. It's when God oppresses His people and His people recognize their sin that they are drawn to lament. In our devotional commentary, which is available online, and we have printed copies here on this passage in, in 1 Samuel, here is what is written, and I wanted to share this this morning. What surprises me here is that God is making His power known against the Philistines and against the Israelites. He is declaring His holiness we often expect God to be on our side, to defend us, to protect us against our enemies, and to bless the plans we have made or favor the way we think things ought to be. God shows no favoritism, no partiality. He is not preoccupied with taking sides. He is holy. He is all-sufficient. He is the one who works all things together, including both death and life. And maybe, instead of expecting the God of the universe to be on our team, we should ask ourselves whether or not we are on His team, following His direction, and striving to understand rightly what He wants. God is God, and there is no other. Brothers and sisters, what is our response to this text? To this part of the story? Where does this part of the story fit into our theology or fit into Christianity today? How is this story relevant? It doesn't fit. So our response when God reveals something about Himself that doesn't quite fit is not to try and change God or to alter what the Bible says concerning God. It's we are drawn to change, repentance and change before God. And that, that can be the only response of God is King. We are the children in this relationship and God is the parent and He is the good, good Father and He is raising us with great care. He is teaching us what He has to teach us while we are on this earth so that we become mature and complete, conformed to the image of Christ for our good so that we learn how to be spiritual adults. And this process lasts the entire time we are on this earth. It's called sanctification. And so when God teaches us something new, we're like good children. We're going to argue against it. And we're going to flail around on the floor and throw temper tantrums. Even though mom says, no, you can't have another piece of cake. It's not good for you to have that much cake, son. And God, as He is raising us, teaching us this. And will this be the time that we submit and repent? Will we lament over our sin? 
Will we lament over the sins of the world? Will we be a people, this being our year of evangelism, will, will we be a people that go into the world among sinners by the way the gospel is meant for sinners to hear? It is not profitable for people who are self-righteous. With gentleness and respect, preach the gospel to the worst of sinners. The homosexual and the murderer and the liar and the thief. And trust God to draw His people to Himself. Trust God to change people into the likeness of His Son, Jesus Christ. Lament is a part of the worship service that is missing in so many churches. And we want to focus on really great music and and an energetic atmosphere. And we want to put up lights and screens. And we don't talk about repentance or lament because those things aren't attractive. But lament being the truest form of worship, if that is the thing that is missing from our worship services, we, we say something about the God we believe in. We say that He's here to cater to us, and that's just not the case. Now here at the Church of Sunsites, we, we have a time that can be classified as a time of lament. I wonder if you can identify it. It's, it's called the Lord's Supper. Currently, we observe this once a month, and it is meant for our reflection, right, as the elements are passed out, and as we see the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, and we partake in this. We, we are meant to remember our sin and what Christ has done for us. And it is meant to be, to be, to be a solemn time of remembrance. And every time we observe the Lord's Supper communion, I pray that we remember this. In January, just as a teaser for 2020, the Church of Sunsides, 2020. We're going to start observing the Lord's Supper on a weekly basis. And so that it's not just once a month we're reflecting on our sin and, and God's amazing grace as we've been saved in Jesus Christ. And, and we are lamenting and repenting for our sin. But, but it becomes a part of the service every week. It's important. For us not to just sing in celebration, but to reflect and lament before God. So brothers and sisters, as we share the gospel, are we just sharing some form of the gospel, and, but in reality, you know, condemning the people outside of the church for any number of reasons? Or when we proclaim this message, are we doing it with great care, with great respect, with great gentleness, calling a sinful people to come to Christ and to repent for their, for their good? And do we recognize that we are the worst of sinners and that we regularly need to come before God in repentance because we are also the worst of sinners and we need to always experience the grace of God, not as some root that produces some fruit that we want because that's false religion, but do we repent because we love God and that God brings this out in us, in our hearts because He has brought us to love Him.